Well, somebody has said that we're having too much fun. They might be right. <laughs> of course, it's nice to have friends that have bulldozers and cannons. <laughs> so we're in this series. And by the way, these are great things to put on your Facebook page and invite people to church and stuff. I saw one somebody did this week. Uh, said had the video on there and it said, come to Burning Bush and see why we're blowing up Lazy Boys. So it's a great way to get people's attention and kind of invite them in a kind of a non-traditional way. But anyway, we're in this series called Stand Up and we have been talking about how we are calling men to stand up to be the fathers and the husbands and the spiritual leaders that they should be. And we're using the, the lazy boy idea here along with the, uh, along with the videos as a metaphor that, that we need to stand up. And I just want to remind you that it's a metaphor. So like if you come to my house, like if you get ready your recliner and then you come over to my house, and you're like, wait, you still have yours? Yeah, it's just a metaphor. I'm not telling you to get rid of your recliners. And in this series, we've also talked about we're kind of specifically addressing the men. I mean, there's application for the women here, but we're calling the men out to stand up. Because if you read through the Gospels and you ask yourself this question, what would Jesus do? What did Jesus do to totally turn the world and alter the course of world history. Well, if you look, he spent a lot of his time calling men out and discipling men and then sending them out. And I kind of wondered to myself, what would happen if all the men at Burning Bush would stand up and be the fathers and the, the husbands and the spiritual leaders that they should be? Well, first of all, it'd certainly change our families. And then it would change this community. And dare I say, it could change the world. You know, sometimes I go to uh, church conferences, leadership conferences, conferences, and that kind of thing. That is an English word, isn't it? And um, I go, and I don't go very often. In fact, I'm going this week, and that'll be the only one that I go to this week. But you hear different speakers and they talk about different things and you'll hear a church growth expert say something like this. Well, you know what the church needs is a more engaging vision statement. That might be true. But what the church really needs is more engaged men. Sometimes you'll hear a speaker say, what the church needs is a more intentional ministry plan. That might be true, but what the church really needs is more intentional men. You might hear a pastor say, well, what the church needs is more passionate worship. There could be some truth in that, but what the church really needs is more passionate men. And as I say this stuff this morning, I'm not disparaging women at all. Because if you look at church history, so many times, especially in the United States, when you look at our Christian traditions, it's been the women that have led the way. And this is what statistics tell us. This weekend, 61%, and this is across all denominations, 61% of the people that attend church will be women. 39% will be men. So it's the men 
that need to accept the challenge to stand up. And so, so far in this series, we've looked at a couple different men. We looked at Adam, and we said he's kind of the stereotype of a lot of men today. He was very passive when he should have said something, when he should have done something, when the serpent was tempting his wife Eve. He didn't say anything, and he didn't do anything. And you look at our society, and there's just a lot of men who have become very passive. And then last week, we looked at uh, Joshua, and we said he's kind of the prototype Joshua is this guy that kind of defines what what masculinity could look like. And this morning, we're going to look at Jesus as kind of the archetype, so to speak, of what masculinity could look like. I mean, he's the only one that ever came to this earth and lived a perfect life. And so we're going to kind of look at him. This is what masculinity should look like. Because, you know, we've been kind of kicking around that term toxic masculinity because when you google masculinity that's the word that always wants to kind of show up there toxic masculinity and we live in a society where there are people that were like you know what we need to do with masculinity we just need to crush this whole gender distinction and just make it this one big unisex world i don't think that's what god i know that's not what god wants and i don't think that's what most women want So if we're going to define masculinity in a biblical way, who's a better person to look at than Jesus? And Jesus can just kind of flip the script on masculinity, both in our culture today, and he certainly did it in the first century Roman Empire where he grew up. So we want to let his life define masculinity. And here's what I want to do for the next few minutes. I want to look at four kind of common markers of toxic masculinity. And I know there are more than four, so don't send me a bunch of emails this week about all the ones I forgot, or we'd be here till five this afternoon. I know you don't want that. But I'm just going to pick four, and I think they're kind of four that we could all probably really agree on, that yeah, those are pretty common markers of toxic, max, toxic masculinity. And then what I want to do, after each of those, I want to look and see how Jesus contrasts toxic masculinity with the masculinity that he displayed. And because we're kind of looking at a comprehensive overview of the life of Christ, we're going to be in a number of different scriptures. You'll be able to follow most of them up on the screen, and, and some of them I'm just going to quote to you. But we'll be in a lot of different places instead of just kind of a single passage this morning. So here's the first one. I think we'd all definitely know, know this one. Toxic masculinity degrades and objectifies women. And of course, that's a lot of what the Me Too movement's about in the last year or a couple of years. Prominent names have been associated with this. And, and there's no question that there have been generations of men that have seen women as objects to be used. And they are taught that men dominate women and exploit them for their own pleasure and that masculinity is somehow linked to sexual conquest. And then our young men and our, and our boys pick up on this Have you ever heard some of the music that's out there today? It just absolutely degrades women and just casually refers to them in ways that we can't even imagine. And and then there's other ways in our culture where that kind of stuff is taught. And then when when these boys grow up and and they've got this kind of toxic masculinity, 
part of our culture just throws his hands up like they're shocked. Oh, well, how did this happen? Well, how did it happen? It's the culture that we live in and the music that's being played and the television shows and, and the things they see on the internet. And culture has taught them the wrong way to treat women. But this is not new stuff. I mean, if you go back all the way into ancient history, women have been exploited and abused by men. And I want to just kind of go back, and, and of course it happened even before his time, but I want to talk about some of the, the, the markers, so to speak, in first century Roman, the Roman Empire when Jesus was walking this earth. Listen to some of the things that, that the culture was like when Jesus was born. Here's just a few examples. In the first century... It was not socially, it wasn't socially acceptable for a man to greet a woman in public. You weren't even supposed to do that. Secondly, it was extremely rare. It happened on rare occasions, but it was rare for a woman to own property or to be able to accept or receive an inheritance. In the first century Roman Empire, Men could divorce their wives for any reason they wanted, but the wives were not permitted to divorce their husbands at all. Women were not allowed to study, not even the Bible, not even the sacred text. They weren't allowed to do that. In fact, one rabbi said this, Rather should the word of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. Also, they were not allowed to bear witness in court because they weren't considered trustworthy. So women were never called as witnesses to court. So that was the mentality of the day. That was the world that Jesus was born into. And you know what he did? He turned all that upside down. He turned it on, his, on its head. He valued women and he befriended women and he respects and protects women. And I just want to give you some examples of that. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus heals a woman in the temple on the Sabbath. One of the religious leaders, he is just indignant about this. And as Jesus is rebuking this religious leader, this, this bully, he speaks value over this woman and he refers to her with a term of great respect. He calls her a daughter of Abraham. Now we might just kind of quickly read over that and not think much about it, but it's really a pretty big deal. There's no record of a woman being called a daughter of Abraham before this. In connection to God's covenant with man, it was always Abraham and Abraham's sons. Daughters were never mentioned. Now Jesus comes on the scene and he refers to this lady as a daughter of Abraham. And in so doing, he speaks equality into the man and woman relationship, covenant relationship with God. So that was a term that hadn't been used up until this point. Did you know that the first time Jesus ever reveals himself to someone and calls himself the Messiah, that it was a woman? The Samaritan woman who had been married multiple times and was living with someone who wasn't her husband? In John chapter 8, a woman is brought to Jesus who was caught in the act of adultery. We pick it up in verse 3 of chapter 8. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. To you, what does that caught in the act signify? I mean, if there's adultery, somebody's caught in the act, 
Isn't there two people? Two people to commit adultery, right? We don't see anything about the man. Where's the man? Well, they treated men and women differently. So the woman is called into account, and she's thrown at the feet of Jesus. The guy, he's nowhere to be found. We continue that passage. It says, they made her stand before the group, and in verse 4, and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And Jesus stands up and he protects her. And he confronts the hypocritical religious bullies here. But he's gentle and he's tender with her. Jesus also broke the rules when it came to teaching ladies. You go over to the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. And it reads this way, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Verse 39, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Here's what's significant about this. That just didn't happen. Usually if anybody was sitting at the feet of Jesus, it was a male. It would be men, and if there was a lot of them, the most prominent men would sit up front. But Jesus doesn't tell her, hey, you go to the back, you go sit in the corner of the room. Peter, you need to sit down front here. John, you need to sit down front front here. That's not what he does. He gives value to her. He says, you sit here. Then later he explains for Martha that it's better for her to sit and listen to his teachings than to be busy with household chores. I don't know that we grasp that either. I mean, women weren't even allowed out of the house without permission. And yet Jesus is saying, hey, better for you not to even worry about the household chores. Come and hear what I have to say. I mean, women just weren't even permitted to learn the scriptures. And here Jesus is making it very prominent. I mentioned that women were not allowed to bear witness. Have you ever thought about this? The most monumental event that ever took place in the history of this world was Jesus's resurrection and who were the first people to see it and who were told to go tell other people two women women weren't considered trustworthy for that kind of information but yet Jesus sends them out to bear witness for what is true so my point is that women who were with Jesus they never felt invisible They never felt overlooked or less than. Again and again, Jesus makes it clear that he respects and he values women. Maybe one of the best examples of this is Luke chapter 8. You may remember the story. Jesus is with this very powerful man and that he is going to help this very powerful man. And there's this lady that's had a blood issue. And we're told told that she had this blood issue for 12 years. Some people think that that her, her body wouldn't, wouldn't scab and so that she just bled all the time for 12 years. She spent all of her money on doctors. And then she has this idea. What if I could just touch Jesus? What if I could just even just touch his clothes? And so when Jesus comes by, that's what she does. And she touches his clothes. And she's healed. And Jesus feels power come out of him. So he stops to find out who this was. She's not even supposed to be there. She's an outcast 
of society. She's declared unclean because of her illness, and she tries to hide. And here's what the Bible says, and I'm quoting. She realized she could not go unnoticed. In other words, Jesus was not going to let her go unnoticed. I love that. And he calls her daughter. Here's this woman who's been rejected. She's an outcast. And Jesus speaks incredible value to her. He calls her daughter. I want to talk to the ladies for just a minute this morning. Ladies, I, I recognize that there are many examples of toxic masculinity in our culture. And I know it's easy to throw all men in on that. And I know that some of you have been deeply wounded by a man or men. Maybe a man who should have been there to protect you, but instead he's the one that hurts you the most. And I know that all of you ladies, whether it's a father or a husband, you live with men who are sinners and probably owe you an apology. And I can tell you as a man that I've had to apologize many times to my wife and my daughters whom I've loved deeply because I've been demanding or I've been harsh or I've been selfish or I've been prideful. I've probably apologized to my wife more times than anybody on this planet. And she would probably tell you, yep, and he still owes me some more. There have been too many days I haven't cherished her like I should or valued her like I should or led her, not always honored her like I should. And I'm thankful for her grace and her patience and the fact that she forgives me. She has forgiven me like Jesus when I didn't act very much like Jesus. And yet I want to recognize that, that many of you so it's not just a sinner in your life that you need to confront, some things that they need to get right. It's that a man in your life might have taken the, the masculine thing that God has gave him, strength, and used that to abuse you. And he is the definition of toxic masculinity because he's taken something that God has given him, a strength that God gave him, and he's used that strength to abuse you. And what you need is much more than an apology. Yeah, an apology, that'd be a nice place to start. But you're owed a lot more than that. And so sometimes the tendency is to just become bitter and angry and be angry with all men and, and, and maybe angry with God. And my prayer is that you would find a grace to forgive him. Now hear me out. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. That has a lot to do with a man. What we're talking about in forgiveness here is not restored trust. That's not necessarily what forgiveness is. If you are living with a man that is using his God-given strength to physically abuse you, you need to get out. You need to get help and you need to take your children with you. And he needs to be broken and he needs to be repentant and he needs tons of help and a lot of accountability. Right? Can I get some amens this morning? Yeah. 
But my prayer is in your heart, you would still find the grace and forgiveness that the one person, Jesus Christ, can set you free, perhaps of the great pain that another man has brought to you. And that your value and your worth will not be determined by a man or some other man in your life, but it will be determined by one man, Jesus Christ. Because the best of men will disappoint you, but Christ will not disappoint you. Would you receive that? And men, may I say to you, when you speak to a woman, you are speaking to a daughter of God. And when you objectify a woman, you are objectifying a child of God. And should you raise your hand to a woman, you are raising your hand to a child of God. And that should strike fear in the deepest parts of our, of our hearts. I'm a father of five. I have two daughters and three sons. One of my daughters is married. My other daughter's in college, and she still lives at home. And sometimes I've thought about, what would I do if somebody was verbally abusing them, some, some guy in their life, or, or somebody grabbed them and physically was going to hurt them? What would I do? Well, you know, just like all of you dads would do, you would do everything you could to protect them. Like, I'm not going to say, well, she's your wife. No, no, she's my daughter. And sometimes I have conversations with these young men who want to take my daughters out. And I probably enjoy those conversations more than I should. Dads, feel free to take notes. You can use this stuff I'm fixing to talk about. So, so, when, so when that guy comes over, like I said, you can steal this. Here's the first thing you need to do. Make sure there's a lot of awkward silence. Just, just, just let them sit there. Just, just, just this awkward silence. Just sit there as long as you can. And, and then, you know, you, you might say something. I say, you know, you might, I might say something like this. You know, you see me on Sunday mornings and you think I'm this really nice, kind guy, and I am, but don't mistake that for a weakness. Because, you know, I know a lot of guys with, with heavy equipment that can dig six, feet, six foot holes in a really big hurry. And I think my sons have enjoyed these first date talks a little bit too much, too. Years ago, my daughter Bonnie, she's the oldest, she was getting ready to go to a school function. It was a, a special school event. And she'd never been out on a date with this particular gentleman before. So he came over to the house and he, he was an extremely polite young man, just, just very polite, very, very kind, very respectful, and very, very nervous. I mean, he was just wearing out those fingers. And uh, he, I invited him into the house, had him ask him to sit down on the couch, and then we had that awkward silence time where I let him kind of sweat a little bit. And, I, and then we started making small talk, and I had no idea that her brothers were going to do this. All at once, they come into the living room her two brothers, two of her brothers, and they have nothing on but their boxers. That was it, boxers. And one of them, because he's kind of sitting on the end of the couch, kind of motions for him to slide down, and then they sat down next to him about as close as they could without touching him and nothing but their boxers and never said a word. Just sat there. And that poor guy, I actually felt sorry for him. <laughs> And 
I can tell you that night, their sister let them have it. <laughs> but here's the point. I would do anything to protect my daughters. I'd put fear into anyone that would try to hurt them. And we need to treat all women as God's daughters because they are His. So that's the first marker. Second one is this. Toxic masculinity emphasizes dominance and power. In our culture, men are taught to measure themselves a lot of times based on dominance and power. So what's that look like? Well, when you're young, it tends to look like stuff like this. Well, how many points did you score in the game? Oh, did you see that tackle I made? Man, I leveled that guy. Or what's your bench press max? Or what's the highest score you've had on the ACT? And then as we get older, it's more about, well, what, how big is your house? Or how much money do you have? Or what kind of car do you drive? Or how many people report to you? And there are all kinds of ways we measure that dominance and power kind of based on how you grew up and where you lived and maybe what subculture you sort of live in. But that's not the way Jesus measured a man. Because the problem with that, when a man measures himself with dominance and power, whenever he's challenged, how does he respond? With aggressiveness and violence so you challenge a man's masculinity and it's like nobody's going to talk to me like that let's go out back and we'll go a few rounds and settle this and that's how dominance and power works he asserts that through violence and aggression here's something to think about this morning have you ever thought about this it was really hard to offend jesus in a personal way. Now he would get offended when somebody would dishonor God. He would get offended when other people were taken at disadvantage of. But to offend him personally, you just don't ever see it. He, he, he just didn't. You, you couldn't offend him. Even when he's standing before all his accusers, before he's going to be crucified, he doesn't even respond to them. And so in some ways he redefines masculinity... Because the next time you're being criticized, the next time you feel like your power and your dominance is being threatened or your status as a man is being attacked, you don't need to defend yourself or assert your dominance. You can be humble and gentle like Jesus was. Like we talked about in our series, Kind Words Are Cool. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's what real men do. So how did Jesus define masculinity in relation to dominance and power? He defined it as serving and sacrifice. Jesus shows us that manhood and masculinity and serving all go hand in hand. And that if you're talking about being a man, a scriptural man, you're talking about serving. That's what separates the men from the boys. Do you remember John chapter 13? Most of us remember that where the, the Last Supper took place. And what else took place in that story? Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, right? 
So these guys that not too long before this had been fighting over who's going to be on the right hand and who's going to be on the left and get, get to be you know, there with Jesus front and center, now he's washing their feet and he's explaining to them, this is what a servant looks like. The leader washing feet. He knew too that G Judas was going to betray him. Now if this was about dominance and power, what might have this looked like? He wouldn't have been washing Judas's feet, right? No, you know what he probably would have done? He would have grabbed him by the collar and held him up against the wall. Do you know who I am? He might have thumped him a few times in the chest. Do you know what you're fixing to do? That's what it might have looked like. The Rocky music starts playing in the background, a Karate Kid music or something. Instead, he washes his feet. So what if I told you the most masculine thing you can do is serve someone who can't give you anything in return. What if I told you the most masculine thing that you can do is to serve someone that's taken advantage of you? What if I told you the most masculine thing you can do is to serve someone who doesn't appreciate you or maybe give you the respect that you think you deserve? What if the next time when your wife criticizes you, instead of being defensive or, or launching that counterattack, you listen to her. And then you go, in the, you go in the kitchen and you think about what she said as you're washing the dishes. I don't know, Pastor. That sounds pretty weak. I don't know about that. Why don't you try it? Let me know how it goes. I mean, I don't personally do that, but I like the theory, right? Sounds good. You know, in my house, if I'm loading the dishwasher, man, I'm clanging dishes, banging them around because I want everybody to know that I'm serving, right? But now, seriously, masculinity through serving. That's how you live it out. That's what Jesus says. Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Third one, toxic masculinity stifles emotion and vulnerability. What is it our culture teaches guys? You know, don't show emotion. Whatever you do, don't cry. Then we get the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. And he's crying, he's grieving over his friend, his buddy, Lazarus. Jesus wasn't afraid to express emotion. And one of the reasons I think this is so important because what is it, what, what, what emotion is it cool for men to do? Like, it's okay then. It's, a, it's almost like it's got a stamp of approval on it. It's anger, right? Yeah, if you get angry, yeah, that's what you do as a man. You showed him, you told her, yeah. And that's, that's cool. But I think a lot of times men are so angry because they don't know any other way to express their emotions because they bottled it all up because they were told, hey, you can't be vulnerable, you can't cry, you can't show emotion, you just need to tough it out. But Jesus isn't like that. He expresses emotion. It's just not the Jesus wept verses either. There are other places. For instance, when he's at the Garden of Gethsemane and he, and he knows he's fixing to die, he's got these guys that have lived life with him. And he says, guys, this is tough. I need you to pray with me. I need you to keep watch for me. It's okay to say that everything's not okay when it's not okay. 
Sometimes I, I, I just get amused or frustrated. I don't know what the white word is with men. I mean, a guy's son can be strung out on drugs and the same guy's daughter is pregnant out of wedlock and his wife is leaving him and he's losing his job and he's, you can be in a little group and you say, well, 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 just tell us something personal that's bothering you. Well, still, I still can't believe the Falcons blew that lead in the Super Bowl. Like, What? Really? Because we just have this culture that says, you know, I don't need help. When we do need help, that's not what it means to be a man. Guys, stay here, pray with me. Watch for me. And you know what? Vulnerability takes a lot, a lot of courage. A whole lot of courage. Jesus declared that. Last one. Toxic masculinity fosters independent or extreme independence. That's why so many men have a hard time asking for help. Somewhere along the way, we picked up the idea that as a man, I can help other people. I'm supposed to help other people, but I can't accept help. And I, through the years, I've talked to so many men that, you know, were, were, were great at assisting other people and then something happened in life and they needed to be dependent on somebody helping them. And they just really struggle with that. And I understand that because we've been taught all of our lives, you help other people, but you tough it out. Real men tough it out. Real men suffer, suffer in silence. Real men suck it up. But there's nothing wrong with getting help. There's nothing at all. He accepts help from his disciples and he also cries out in dependence to God and he asks God for strength and help. You know, this whole series where we've been challenging you men to stand up, all of us, myself included, we've been talking about this. This is not about you just pull up your bootstraps and some kind of white-knuckle determination to push yourself through it. That's not going to work. It might work for a week or two, but it's not going to work long term. You need the Holy Spirit, and you need to be dependent on God and let the Holy Spirit work in you. Not some kind of independent, fierce determination that I, that I can do this. No, we need His grace and we need His help. And let me say this. The most important decision you will ever make is accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and making sure that you're depending on Him. This stuff that we're talking about, I mean, maybe you can be the father and husband that you need to be without God, but it's going to be really, really tough. And most people can't do it, and certainly the spiritual leadership part of this you can't achieve without Jesus but God came, Jesus came, he died on a cross, he lived a perfect life, and he promises us that if we recognize that he died for us, all those things that we've messed up, all those sins, all the stuff that we've failed short on, we ask for his forgiveness, he promises us forgiveness, he promises us eternal life, and he also promises to help us live on this planet. He promises to transform us. If you haven't ever done that, there's not been a time where you consciously made a decision, say, Jesus, I want to put you in charge. Forgive me for all this stuff that I've messed up. 
Come talk to me. Talk to somebody you know here at the church. Make an appointment. Send an email. Whatever. Because that's the most important thing that you will ever do. Last thing, I get a little bit of homework for you. Guys, here's your assignment. This is a really brave assignment. It's going to take you a lot of bravery to do this. Lunch today, pillow talk tonight, whenever. Ask your wife how you can serve her better. And when she starts talking, quick to listen, slow to speak. Okay? That takes some courage. Ask your wife how you can better serve her, how you can be more like Jesus, so to speak. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for a beautiful day. We're coming to you again in prayer. And Father, I just thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you for the promise of eternal life that he gives to all of us, the hope that he gives to us. But Father, we thank you for the way he lived on this earth and what he teaches us about masculinity and what it means to be a man. It just so contradicts our culture. Father, I pray for all of us. I think every man in here, there's some things that he could walk away from this morning realizing that, yeah, that's probably something I need to work on. Father, I pray for each man that's here today. I pray that you just speak to him, lead him in the direction that you'd have him to go. I thank you for our wives that love us when we fall short so many times. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.